Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this event. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the LSE and the chair for tonight. And it's my pleasure to welcome Gwen Griffith-Dixon, who's with us to speak. Um, but before I introduce her speech and this, let me say a little more about the event. So it's welcome to this talk, but welcome um, not only to the talk, but to dialogue and a continuing series of which it's part. And the series is organized together with Matthew Engelke from the LSE Anthropology Department and Jim Walters, um, our chaplain. Um, and the idea of the series is to ask how religion does and doesn't matter in UK public life, how it should and shouldn't, perhaps, uh, and to try to be a bit more articulate about religion, and indeed non-religion, and how they figure. It's an arena that, um, in which some people are very articulate, but I think at large in the population we aren't fully articulate. Tonight's talk brings up one theme of this. When confronted with um, prevent and other measures designed to um, counter terrorism and implying that religion is a central dimension of that, we aren't sure exactly how to think about this, talk about this, debate the questions that are sure, um, and there are a variety of um, consequences to that. One key question for the series is whether we have a full picture of religion in the UK. Do we, for example, assume rather less Christianity and more Islam in the picture of religion. If you focused on where the headlines are in newspapers, you would have the impression that Islam looms much larger in the numbers in the UK and in uh, religion and public life than it probably does. You would very likely miss a huge part. You would very likely miss majority black Pentecostal churches, which don't figure in that kind of public arena much at all, although they've had very rapid growth and are significant. So the picture um, might be um, inaccurate in various ways. Uh, when we think about articulacy, it seems to me we have a question that's posed as religious literacy that often focuses on the content of religion. What do we know about this or that religious tradition? But by articulacy, I think we also ought to mean some of how we think about the values, the character, the feelings, the place, the role of religion in a way that is not just, oh, we know this about Judaism, that about Islam, that about Buddhism, but is something about what it means in the UK, what it means um, in the national conversations. So these are our agendas. There'll be eight more of these occasions over the next few months, and I hope they're interesting. I'm sure it will be tonight when um, Gwen speaks. Gwen Griffiths-Dixon is the director and founder of the Lokahi Foundation and a visiting professor at King's College London in the Theology and Religious Studies Department. Before her appointment at King's, she was the vice principal of Heathrop College, the University of London Jesuit Institution. Prior to that, she was the head of Religious Studies, Theology, and Islamic Studies, and then head of the School of Arts and Cultural Studies at Birkbeck College, University of London. She was the first female Gresham Professor of Divinity. Gwen works in philosophical theology across different religious traditions. She was a commissioner for the Wolf Institute Commission on Religion and Belief in British Public Life, chaired by Elizabeth Butler Sloss. And in September, she's publishing her first novel, Bleedback, which deals with the war on terror and the rise of Daesh, or the Islamic State. Lokahi, the NGO that Gwen founded in 2004, combines 
um, high-quality academic-level research with social impact projects focusing on interfaith issues, religion, and security. And in this field, Lokahi managed, supported, and operated Britain's channel intervention providers nationwide before 2010. They then created Operation Nicole, later Leos, and built communication and trust between police and communities, and in so doing, indeed, actually have what I is not, but should be, the ultimate ref impact study. <laughs> they actually prevented a terrorist attack. Um, Lokahi also created um, Campus Salam and Campus Lokahi programs that train students to hold university events while managing and tackling conflict and extremism. In 2014, Gwen co-authored an influential paper on counter-extremism and de-radicalization in the UK, in which she argues that it's issues relating to religious extremism, where the traditional boundaries between religion and state are breaking down. That the religion-state boundary is challenged by this debate that is going on about religious extremism. It's caused religion to become entwined in questions about law and order and national security, put religion in new relationship with government. This all brings us on to the topic of Gwen's talk tonight, religion, security, and strategy, an unholy trinity. Gwen will speak for about a half hour, a little more. We'll have a bit of a dialogue between us and then open to your questions in the audience, stopping at eight. Gwen. Thank you. Kanaka, e malama o ku i ke akua, a e malama hoi ke kanaka nui, a me kanaka iki, e hele ka ele makule, aluahine, a me ke kama, a moe i ke ala, a oe me anana e hoopilikia. In the Hawaiian Islands, which is where I'm from and where that speech is from, in the 18th century, King Kamehameha ruled some of the islands but aspired to rule all of them. He was a very powerful and impressive man. He was seven feet tall. And even visiting Europeans, perhaps not minded to multiculturalism in the 18th century, were in awe of him. Intelligent, creative, superbly strategic, he was described as moving in an aura of violence. One day he was mounting an attack on a coastal village. As he led his warriors into battle, seven feet tall, ripped, well-armed, the villagers fled in terror. One solitary fisherman stayed behind to try to delay his advance so the slower-moving elderly and women and children could get away safely. Not being a warrior, all he had to defend himself as a fisherman was his canoe paddle. As the king bore down on him with an obsidian-bladed spear and a club studded with shark's teeth, death seemed inevitable. But a mishap struck Kamehameha. If you know lava rock tidal pools, and you might, you'll know that sometimes beneath that layer of rock there's a former bubble of lava, a crust of lava cools over it, which can be very thin and brittle. As it happens, Kamehameha trod on one of these, and given his walk, he went right through into it, and his foot got trapped in the pocket. The fisherman seized his moment and started battering the king over the head with his paddle until it splintered and the king fell bloodied and senseless. 
Fisherman bolted for his life, escaping only because the king's retinue was preoccupied with saving the king, dragging this big figure into the canoe and paddling him home. For a month, the king lay and brooded like Achilles, sulking in his tent until he was fully recovered. Then he rose and commanded that the fisherman be brought to him. The poor wretch was found, captured, and dragged before the king. Under Hawaiian laws at the time, the king's personage was so sacred, so divine, that even looking at him, or even his shadow falling on you as you prostrated yourself, if you were of very low rank, could incur a death sentence. As for battering him over the head with your paddle... The fisherman was held before the king, and everyone waited to see the manner in which he was going to die. Kamehameha addressed him. Speak to me. Why did you not finish me off and kill me? The fisherman answered, If I'd have known you were still alive, I would have hit you again. (laughs) But the king addressed him as his teacher and thanked him for teaching him this lesson. Everyone has the right to defend himself, even against a king. (laughs) And then he rewarded him by granting him a parcel of land. Then he turned to his court and pronounced a new rule that was to be added to the Hawaiian legal canon, Kanavai Mamalai Hoi, which I will now say this time in English. It's called the Law of the Splintered Paddle. (laughs) Oh, my people, honor God. Respect equally the rights of the great and the humble. See to it that our elderly, our women, and our children can lie by the roadside in perfect safety without fear of harm. This is not a law of peacetime. This was enunciated as a law to hold during times of war. In the storm of violent upheaval, the civilian was to be safe from harm or even harassment at all times. And more striking still... Kamehameha subjected himself and his warriors and his government to this law. So much so, in fact, that his advisors tried to talk talk him out of implementing it until their military objectives had been achieved. Kamehameha, as you hear, describes a social, political, military principle as honoring God. This insight that fundamental religious observance consists in care for the vulnerable is a widespread intuition in the spiritual life. But alongside this intuition is something else embodied in the law of the splintered paddle, that national security and public safety are also felt to be the preeminent responsibilities of the state, and that the most noble expression of this is the state's willingness to restrict its own exercise of power in the event of its interests in favour of protecting the vulnerable. But with two forceful actors, religion and the state, claiming the same duty to protect the vulnerable, confusion or conflict is bound to occur. And so it has been since the rise of the war on terror, and in particular the development of the fourth strand of Contest 2, the UK's counterterrorism strategy, I mean the Prevent strand. Prevent drew the state deeper into the terrain of religion that it previously had wanted to go in this allegedly secular age, In the early days, when there was a higher degree of religious illiteracy than there is even now, it's had peculiar, even amusing moments. Whitehall officials were scrambling to cope with religion in general, let alone the complex, rather unfamiliar terrain of Islam. 
I remember being consulted by one earnest woman who was given the unenviable task of thinking about which Muslims were safe to engage with. In our meeting, she said to me, what do you think of the Salufis? <laughs> you know how you sort of go into a trance and I'm thinking, why is she asking me about a breed of hunting dog? No, no, Salukis, Salukis, Salufis. But the potential for wicked fun at these moments was actually really very great. So I decided just to say, go back and tell your minister, the ones we really need to look out for are the wasabi Muslims. <laughs> Eight years ago, I was observing that the boundaries between the theological, the domain of religious communities to define and enforce, and the operational, the territory of the state, were being obscured by the unspoken notions presupposed by prevent, and that it was becoming ever more confused as they began to work in closer partnership with Muslim communities to de- create and deliver channel which you may know is the program uh, to which people can be referred if they are vulnerable or needing support, uh, being subject or attracted to extremism. And then they are referred to community practitioners to mentor them or sort them out. If you assert that religious beliefs or attitudes are a major factor in terrorism, the most successful methods of intervention to prevent crime and ensure public safety, responsibilities of government, will come to depend on theological intervention. So a list of questions I raised early on during the creation of Channel included, what can a government do legitimately, effectively, and credibly under its own name in steering the direction of a religion or in altering the population's religious beliefs? Another question was, does this take us not just to counter-terrorism or counter-extremism, but is it taking us into counter-subversion, which is trying to influence the population's beliefs, worldviews, etc., in the interests of the state? That was 2008. Two things are true. Eight years on, these questions are old hat. That ship has sailed. The second thing that's true is that although these questions were ignored, resisted, have never been fully explored or discussed, they're actually more urgent now than they were in 2008. The relationship between the state and religion is even more neurologic than it was then. Civilians who now have a statutory duty to implement, prevent, and refer people of concern to channel are caught between prevent fatigue and prevent paranoia. And all the while, recruitment to a violent movement, even more disturbing than al-Qaeda, is reaching those previously thought to be low risk. The government response is a drive to increasing legislation, and ever more draconian legislation. Two particular details exacerbate this fraught relationship. Both were being debated before 2010, but in the two Cameron-led governments since that, they've been winning. One is the decision that it is religious ideology and not other factors like marginalization, social exclusion, grievances over foreign policy. No, it's religious ideology that drives radicalization. The second idea is that violent extremism is not not just violent extremism that should be targeted for elimination, but also beliefs or attitudes that are extremist, even if they disavow violence. Both of these notions, I think, put religion much more in the crosshairs. 
This question of the relationship between religion and the state in matters of security should be seen as one of the most urgent matters for governance. Indeed, one of the many things that needs addressing within a strategic philosophy. If you're wondering what a strategic philosophy is, so am I. It's a concept I'm trying to develop and work up at the moment. Strategic philosophy is a space where governance meets philosophy. It is more than the usual strategic planning, the identification of objectives, strategies, tactics, outcomes. A strategic philosophy is a deeper and a higher reflection on the desired society or state of affairs to be created, as well as a more rigorous reflection on how to get there. It draws on its sources in a history and a place with its culture, traditions, ethos, ethics, texts, works of art, a people's expectations, resistances, divergences. It thus creates an overarching intellectual framework that encompasses a vision with a well-articulated rationale, enunciates the principles, norms, boundaries which frame official action, before turning to the objectives and the strategy and tactics needed to achieve them. Without a strategic philosophy, I'm arguing, that governs, say, security and its relations with, with religious institutions and religious actors, you see a lack of convergence or coherence or consistency between different operations and programs and departments. One example would be when Michael Gove became the Minister for Education. He hired several MI5 people, whom I knew, to work in education in his own little mini program against radicalization and extremism and counterterrorism from within the Department of Education. One of the things that these people did, I think kind of incognito, I think, was to interview people who wanted to set up schools. This was interesting, uh, for as someone from the Home Office said to me, schools isn't really their skill set. Gove was felt to be setting up an alternative office for security and counterterrorism in his own department, which was a source of irritation in the Home Office. Another thing that happens when you lack a strategic philosophy and that kind of consistent, thoroughgoing thinking is that decision-making is not consistent, but it's made by defensive reactions or even ideological lurches. An example would be the responses that follow the parliamentary review of Prevent and the ensuing revision of the Prevent strategy in 2011. I would argue that in response to the challenges and complaints that were made, the revisions to prevent in 2011 didn't problem-solve. Where there were some fairly complex and ambivalent issues, they just did the opposite or stopped doing it. The problem is, with an ambivalent problem, the opposite stance to the previous one is not necessarily the solution. One example I'm thinking of is the complaint that prevent was getting muddled up with cohesion and integration and the two need to be kept separate. That's actually quite a complex issue and the knock-on effect on the community is not necessarily improved if you just flop to the other mode. In short, without a strategic philosophy, what you risk is strategy by shibboleth. Nostrums and catchphrases du jour get turned into actions and policies. Strategy by shibboleth is not good governance. One of the things I would put absolutely to the fore of my strategic philosophy, if I had one, would be the role of non-state actors, or civil society actors, a better term. And here I can't resist quoting a fictional character in <coughs> Bank, 
the novel that Craig mentioned. This is set in 2011 when the Occupy movement is happening. And Armand Rastani is addressing student protesters who have occupied their college building. The era of the non-state actor is dawning. People who act outside of government control. These are the people who will shape the world and history from now on. You need much more revolutionary thinking than just protesting against government policy. What's the point of being limited by what the government does? Take over education for yourselves. I'm beginning to find Rastani very persuasive, and I'm beginning to wonder if this might be the first case of someone being radicalized by their own fictional character. So what would Rastani call for in security matters? The People's Channel, or Occupy Prevent. As for the People's Channel, originally it very nearly was. I was involved, so I watched it all happening. The first channel pilots were in Preston and in Lambeth, and they were largely left to their own devices. There was no kit. There was no sort of instruction manual in how to do channel. Predictably, then, they did two completely different things. And in Preston, they went for a very special branch-led approach, very opaque, and consequently not much is known about that. But Martin Bridger, uh, who is the borough commander of Lambeth, did something very different, which was to turn to the community for help. So various members of Muslim communities in Lambeth were brought in, or dragged in, uh, initially declining to get involved, but eventually persuaded. Some of those in Brixton, for example, those at Brixton Mosque, had already been involved in challenging recruitment to al Jaroon or in fighting uh, al-Faisal on the ground in Brixton. They'd done extensive youth work, and they'd gone head-to-head with the Takfiris uh, in their area on many occasions. So Channel originally in Lambeth was built up from pre-existing or rapidly created community-created programs, youth projects, prison project a project uh, to support families who had a family member in prison on a terrorist offence. And it all ran on a very close relationship between the communities and the police. And in some cases, more channel referrals came from the projects than to the projects from the police. A very short time later, and with very little of the method worked out, channel was rolled out to 24 sites, and not long after that it went national. Most of those boroughs or police forces lacked those well-grounded community relationships, and they certainly didn't have skilled and experienced community practitioners working in this kind of area that they could refer people to. Channel was no longer formed by the emergence of indigenous spontaneous community action. For several years, while we were acting as intermediary between the community projects and the Home Office, supporting them, training them, working on methodology, evaluating them, monitoring. I had the sense of two very different human systems in collision, two different worlds. One was a world of risk assessments, vulnerability assessments, activities, methodologies, targets, monitoring, record-keeping, exit strategies. In short, everything you have to have if it's a government program receiving taxpayers' money. But the other world was the perennial traditional village. You know that saying about it takes a village to raise a child. That village, that's a village I mean. The socialization process. From time immemorial, our young people have gone off the rails in some way or other, got involved in bits of violence, got terrible ideas, and some wise, mature person in the communities put an arm around them, brought them back, 
sorted it out, reintegrated them and got them on what that community considers to be the right path. And that, in a way, was a natural way, the natural norms and way of operating that the community-led projects were doing. The traditional village approach has a lot to recommend it. Needless to say, it was the other one that won out in the formation of the programme that Channel has become. A significant moment came when the change of government uh, happened with a coalition, the economic crash, which changed funding dramatically, a new prevent strategy, and a new model for paying or not paying intervention providers of Channel. Whereas before, grants were given to a project with numerous group activities, different employees, quite a diverse range of things that were done. From this point on, only a single practitioner working one-to-one on their ideology would be paid 50 quid a pop, no expenses. If they took someone for a cup of coffee, if they took someone to a football game, they had to pay for it all themselves out of their own pocket. The changes in funding and commissioning will by now have saved some millions. And they closed down some very successful programs which were working in more complex and diverse ways. There was an ideological change as well, with ever-increasing insistence that the root problem was religious ideology. Consequently, religious orientation and not skill or not operational effectiveness became the main basis, not officially but in practice, for deciding who would in future be an intervention provider. The Salufis had it, basically. That's, that's the way to look at it. All this is fairly well known, but I think what is not observed is that this was a key moment of control. Control rested away from community actors. No longer can the community expert decide how this work should be done. Some of the success factors we had identified in evaluation of how the cases were going were these. A holistic approach, not just narrowly focusing on someone's beliefs as a problem. A wide circle engaging with their friends, their social circle, their family, so that any changes made would stick, would be sustainable as part of a more a web of what tended to motivate their behavior. Being non-judgmental, not attacking their beliefs, but treating all opinions with dignity. These success factors risk being swept away when you insist on a one-to-one intervention for an hour, focusing exclusively on religious and ideological beliefs that must be changed. As one practitioner said at the time of the changes, the Home Office needs to have a long-term strategy because these short-term strategies lose the expertise we've built up. We don't need top-down strategies, especially when it comes to theological issues. So here we can ask again, who owns this territory? Religion or the state? Who owns the process of guiding and shaping young religious believers? We're lacking a unifying strategic philosophy here, but there is certainly a direction of travel. Or if you want to be paranoid, maybe there's a dark strategy, like the dark web. Here's the trajectory. As the problem refuses to be solved, there is a move to increasing command and control both in operational matters and in legislation. Doesn't the state have the right to command and control in matters of national security? Well, this is the heart of our topic. When religion is made the object of national security, what happens to the autonomy of religion and its actors? Command and control here reduces the role of the citizen to being merely the more credible mouthpiece for government (coughs) counter-narratives. The religious actor 
instead of retaining their proper autonomy in matters of belief and community, is reduced to being the government-backed influencer of vulnerable people. But acting as a passive, uncritical surrogate of government objectives in religion is not the place of the religious actor, whether the activist or the theologian, nor is surrogacy the role of the citizen. Gordon Brown, while still Chancellor, fitfully introduced the tactical use of the phrase British values or shared values some time ago. But under the two conservative-led governments, this has become a major part of government comms, i.e. messaging or propaganda. This promulgation of values by the state might look high-minded, but it's been deeply unpopular. Actually, in research of ours, we found that minorities were happy with the idea of British values being shared values as long as they could participate and contribute to the naming and the shaping of what those values are deemed to be. But no national conversation has taken place. I think our unease with this and its use is founded on a tacit intuition that this exercise is manipulative. You weren't asked, were you, what your top four values are. Just take a moment and think, what would be your top four values? values. Well, these are the official top four British values as named in legislation. Democracy, the rule of law, individual liberties, and mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. Nothing about justice. Nothing about racial tolerance and respect, which I gut feeling would be more people in the country would be comfortable ennobling that than respecting everyone's religion. Arguably, these aren't even really values. Rule of law is a legal principle. Democracy is a system of government. And if, by the way, you were thinking peace, wisdom, fairness is your, is your top four. In fact, this list of four... <coughs> Rather than recognisably characterising what's quintessentially British, appears to be specifically targeting the jihadi rhetoric. But the reputation of an opponent's rhetoric is not the same as a definition of national character. A manipulative promulgation of values in the context of the religion-state relationship is potentially pernicious. The state is not to hold the citizens personally accountable for living up to their values, It's the other way around. Citizens in civil society should be holding our elected representatives and institutions to account. One Christian understanding, for example, of the role of religion in the socio-political sphere is a prophetic role. Speaking truth to power is a phrase often used. Is the state actually appropriating the prophetic role? Dark strategy or not, the direction of travel has just now taken us further down the road towards command and control than we've ever been before. This is the crossroads we've reached. In the next Queen's speech, we'll have a new counter-extremism bill. Its contents have not been announced yet. We'll find out next week. But it was discussed last autumn and throughout the year last year. It was adumbrated at various points, including, of course, the release of a counter-terrorism strategy. So we can have a guess as to what might be in it. The current definition of extremism, by the way, so this is what will now be enforced. Extremism is vocal or active opposition to fundamental British values, including democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. 
And what has been discussed that will be in there, essentially the controls that currently apply to terrorism or violent extremism, will now be applied to extremism, which is opposing those four British values. Realize this is applying to situations where violence might be explicitly rejected, but you just don't respect and tolerate other people's beliefs. The bill will most likely bring in civil orders to ban nonviolent extremist groups, restrict the behavior of certain individuals. For example, they're not allowed to use the Internet or use social media to communicate without police permission, and to close down premises used for extremist purposes. It's also said they're going to have a systematic review of all institutions and they're going to investigate the application of Sharia. So if I can have two flippant observations first. An analytic philosopher might have some sport with wondering if this bill is actually self-refuting or maybe self-indicting, is that what we should call it? To comply with legislation which requires tolerance and respect for religious beliefs, we need to be intolerant of some faiths and beliefs. If we don't repudiate the Salufis, we might have a control order (coughs) slapped on us. Secondly, as I mentioned philosophers, this could get personal. Given that vocal, active opposition to respecting and tolerating faiths now counts as extremism, Richard Dawkins and our friend A.C. Grayling fit the definition of non-violent extremists. Should their colleagues refer them to channel or close their premises down? This point though, actually is not so flippant when you stop and think that this familiar feature of British cultural and intellectual life will now be within the scope of banning orders. Prevent and Channel in particular were always designed for the terrain that was not subject to law enforcement. In other words, if you could investigate someone for something, if it looked like they might be guilty of something, they're not included in the channel referral process. That was the whole point. Channel was designed to get people before they were in any danger of contemplating a crime and intervene then. With the counter-extremism bill, most of the terrain that currently belongs to prevent someone showing troubling beliefs will now be part of enforcement or pursue. So will prevent actually just vanish as a separate strand? Or will they relocate prevent? from non-violent extremism to make further inroads into what is deemed to be legal or acceptable beliefs and attitudes? If the bill is actually passed, Channel, I think, certainly will require substantial retooling in how it operates. But imagine it will also increase anxiety for those who have a statutory duty, for example, some people here, to make referrals to Channel. Make some? Make referrals to Channel. So if you're going to refer someone you're not sure about, which is the stage at which you should refer them, does it affect how you feel about this duty? If the referral is not for support and safeguarding, but the referral will now lead to investigation and control orders. So under this bill, the beliefs and attitudes and values that you and I hold are now subject to security and enforcement. In 2008, I was worried about counter-subversion. Now I'm beginning to worry about thought crime. The irony is that superficially, religion is being protected here by the legal requirement to tolerate and respect other people's beliefs. But it's above all religious attitudes and doctrines that are targeted. Atheists and religious people alike should be alarmed. If prevent and channel aren't entirely working, 
Do the police or Home Secretary need new powers to keep us safe? I don't think the failures of prevent are because the government does not have enough power. The failures spring from a double root, the lack of a strategic philosophy and failures in trust building and communication to engage civil society actors. On the latter point, here is the briefest headline form what I think Occupy Prevent could look like. First of all, return to a community-based, community-led approach to engaging with those who are attracted to aggressive or violent ideologies. Abandon the concept, as well as the term de-radicalize. Second, mount a hostile takeover bid of counter-narratives, please. Third, seize back ownership, or indeed authorship, of British values. If we're asserting that they're characteristically British, let the British people articulate the British people articulate what they are. So on the other failure, the lack of a strategic philosophy, let's just do an imaginative exercise of what a strategic philosophy might look like in a particularly defined area. And just to avoid offence or me being referred to channel, let's make it a fictional nation-state. Because of the law of the splintered paddle, let's make it Hawaii. And let's make it an independent nation-state. So we'll imagine Donald Trump is elected president, and the Hawaiian sovereignty movement, which is a real movement, which wants to roll back the illegal annexation of Hawaii in the 19th century and get, have its independence back. Well, the election of Trump boosts the Hawaiian sovereignty movement and they get sovereignty back. So there's three elements in particular in this strategic philosophy that the Hawaiians want to deal with. The law of the splintered, splintered paddle remains in force. It's part of the Constitution. It is actually still in the Hawaii State Constitution. Elderly, women, children, anyone can lie down and sleep in public without fear of harm or harassment. Second, the recognition that there will be a great increase in diversity in our population, perhaps sudden influx of migrants, perhaps fleeing President Trump. And third, the desire to preserve and ideally increase <coughs> liberties and civil rights rather than move in the direction of repression. So protecting people from harm and violence, realizing we're going to have a, an increase in diversity, differences of opinion, a warring ideology, a legacy of conflict after the Hawaiian secession. And third, the desire, however, to preserve civil liberties and freedoms. These are intention. The diversity, especially of opinions about what sort of president you should have or where you should go, tend to increase conflict. Tolerating a full range of ideologies that exist means tolerating those that endorse violence and legitimize exploitation, say, of women and children, which is a problem for the law of the splintered paddle. So you develop an algorithm, and this is it. The better we can manage the consequences of liberty and ideological diversity, the more ideologi ideological diversity and liberty we can allow. So the more you can manage the consequences, the more you can allow of freedom, liberty, and diversity. We here does not mean security or police forces. We means a collective we. It includes civil society. So as an example, if you look at the different responses 
in Britain and Germany after the Second World War, it was not felt to be necessary here to ban saying Heil Hitler or doing a Nazi salute. We could manage the consequences if someone dressed up in a Nazi officer's costume or led a march. In Germany, even something so apparently trivial as saying Heil Hitler was felt to be something, the consequences of which they could not manage. So that would be, I think, an unconscious example of people using this, this algorithm, I'm asserting. How much diversity a society can safely tolerate or support is in part a question of how much civil society can proactively manage diversity by building bridges, skilling people up to understand and tolerate contrary attitudes and beliefs, but also to intervene to protect others from harm. It encompasses the resilience of economic activity, the success of education and health systems, and so on. This fictional strategic philosophy's objective is to foster a population enabled, empowered, and personally motivated to prevent any violence or abusive consequences of freedom of speech and freedom of belief. So if you were to assess, as part of the Hawaiian government, that the situation at the moment, especially (coughs) post-secession, is too volatile to allow total freedom of ideas, but you want to move to a more liberal society in the future, the algorithm gives you the strategy. Increase the ability to manage the consequences of that liberty and diversity in the ways just described, building up civil society, addressing it through the education system. Then you will be able to liberalize. You won't need to prescribe or ban ideas in order to keep the populace from harm. They tell us bacteria are present in our bodies at all time, and it's only when our immune systems are compromised that we get something like pneumonia. By analogy, the danger of dangerous ideas largely only constitutes a significant society-wide threat when a number of other serious factors, major social stresses, are present. Otherwise, dangerous extreme ideas are just regarded as repugnant but kooky. Too kooky for widespread adoption. As a mild example at the moment, say last summer, 2015, July, August, early autumn, the thought that a presidential candidate called Donald Trump could get anywhere was just kooky. No one took it seriously. No one really worked to prevent it or to speak against it effectively because they were unaware of the depth of the social stresses that were applying for some of the population that suddenly made this kooky proposal seem extremely attractive. If this hypothesis were substantiated, then for the sake of human rights and civil liberties, perhaps we can afford to loosen up on policing ideas if we're attending to the social needs, the fault lines that exist in society, the disadvantage and the sources of grievance. So this analysis suggests that if there is enough positive care around the stresses then we can cope with the subversive ideas without as much danger of violence. Consensus is often felt to be safer, but in a society experiencing major stressors, say a sudden dramatic influx of migrants or refugees, or a perception that we're under attack from some fifth column from within, consensus then is a predisposing condition for injustice or even group violence. Individuals and communities can fall prey to an ideology more readily if it's a matter of consensus. As shown by Stanley Milgram's famous experiments where he got people to, as they imagined, administer electric shocks to somebody. 
People will abandon their own strongly emotionally held moral beliefs and feelings to conform with an authority if they're told it's an emergency. A society which strongly emphasizes the need to agree with the majority has created some of the conditions under which, in extreme situations, it's more susceptible to dangerous ideas, murderous ideas. Whereas a society which is more willing to listen to a range of ideas, to allow nonconformism and a free debate even of core values, might be inoculating itself against a susceptibility to indoctrination. This would suggest there is a real importance to having contrarian, subversive ideas in the environment, precisely for the overall health of society. For it's the contrarians who may, in the end, help us to resist a destructive consensus should one ever arise. So, if the counter-extremism bill is passed, then, will the most vulnerable in our society be able to lie down by the roadside and sleep in peace and perfect safety? Or will it make the vulnerable more vulnerable? There are times when theology must become operational, Religions and communities of belief cannot be exempt from self-criticism and urgent action when their teachings, texts, or power structures are exploited for abuse or violence. Meanwhile, it's also the state's responsibility to ensure the safety and security of its citizens, residents, and guests without fear of ho'opilikia, harm, harassment, or abuse. In King Kamehameha's understanding, this includes safety from the state's own military or security operations. And it's done in the way the law of the splintered paddle tells us. Care for and protect equally the powerful person and the lowly person. A'e malama ho'i ke kanaka nui me kanaka iki. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Gwen. Now, we've got lots of things that we can potentially talk about, and I get to monopolize a few minutes of the conversation to ask some questions. And there are many possible questions about prevent as such and channel as such, including, I think, the dubious wisdom of trying to intervene against nonviolent extremism and the impact on universities, which concerns me a lot because I see these as all but anathema to academic community in many ways. And I, we can certainly come back to these. But I'll begin with some of the aspects that more specifically touch on religion here um, and all of this. It seems to me that, that one of the tacit assumptions, if you will, the implicit strategic philosophy of Prevent and Channel and the whole set of programs is that Religion is an ideology and, as such, can be measured in more or less, and some extreme of it drives radicalism. So is that right? Is that this sort of tacit background understanding? Um, and, and to make the question clearer, that as we might say, religion was lots of things besides an ideology or simply a set of beliefs, in a sense, um, or arguments, um, and the, we might see that we might suggest that it's a heterogeneous 
collection of various different things, not a continuum in which you just get more and more extreme as you move down the the continuum. And we might question whether it drives radicalism, whatever radicalism itself is somewhat undefined in this. So am I rightly characterizing, though, the implicit thinking behind this, the implicit uh, theory of the relationship of religion and radicalism in this? I think so. I mean, there's a danger of doing to government people what we complain they do to Muslims, you know, thinking they're all alike or there's you know, one mindset. But I think there is certainly one particular um, way of thinking at its crudest, which is that it's a very Cartesian picture. Mm-hmm. It's, religion is this list of beliefs. That's what religion is about. Some of those are clearly toxic. Some of them are against our interests. So we need to get someone in to sort out those beliefs. As you say, it's a much richer thing for those who are living it. And uh, even, on, even if we're just looking at channel, say, or um, how these interventions are meant to work, the whole world of relationships or communities... Communities, again, communities are hotbeds of problems, but the sense that, that relationships are actually probably more formative and more powerful in shaping some of these things and some cognitive process that you give assent to... Um, escapes a lot of the people who are trying to think about interventions, but it doesn't escape the intervention providers. I remember one, one fellow saying to me, um, one who had been an extremist and then came out, uh, and he was one of the counsellors on, on a programme in Brixton, and he said to me, Gwen, there isn't a single um, young guy that I've worked with that's come through our programme that didn't have father issues. I thought, that's interesting. That's interesting. Now, he was working with a particular demographic. It might be very different in Tower Hamlets. This was a a particular demographic going on in in Brixton. I did find that immediately plausible for that group of young people. All of them that were being drawn into something um, had sort of absent or weak fathers, weren't getting that sort of strong arm around the shoulder, guiding them into life, and were looking for something different. And the ideology, so-called came in as part of that. It was very little to do... Well, it's another, another nice anecdote, again, from Britain, how much... Uh, from Brixton. How much does this have to do with some kind of specific religion of belief and they've learned the wrong kind of Islam? The chairman of Brixton Mosque said to me once, you know, at Saturday prayers, when everyone bends forward, you can hear the clanking. Me being me, I thought, clanking. Yeah, all the weapons in the pockets. <laughs> Um, and then he told me a story of one particular guy who was a convert, and he'd kind of, clang, I don't know, he clanked very loudly, that, that jumat or something. Um, and so my friend said, what's that in your pocket? Oh, it's a knife. I'm going to waste, waste him. You came here. I knew he'd be here, so I'm going to waste him because he dissed me. And Abdul Haq said, you can't kill your brother Muslim. He dissed me. No, if you kill brother Muslim, you're going to go to the hellfire. And he said... I didn't know that. <laughs> what do you not have to know about the religion that you've converted to, not to know that murdering your brother in the act of prayer is inadvisable or maybe stronger? It incurs some kind of... Seriously problem. frowned on in yeah, almost yeah. all yeah. branches. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, th- I think um, that sense that there are a wide range, both of factors going on and why people are attracted, but also religion is a much more complex thing of traditions and, and texts and relationships and practices and interpretations and something that gives you a sense of meaning. All those, all those it's too difficult for them to get their heads around. And when you do talk about it, you can't put it into a policy. 
So on the one hand, we have a richer, thicker understanding of religion that is at odds with the narrowing down to the policy. I wonder if on the other hand, we have also a question of order. Is religion the vocabulary in which um, some ideas are discussed rather than the cause of the ideas. There's an implicit causal order here, right? Religion is causing this. More religion will cause more of it. An extreme amount of it will cause a lot of it. Um, as distinct from a notion that there's something else going on producing anger or opposition to the state or something that gets expressed in religious language and terminology that people um, seek religious settings to follow up, but that maybe isn't the starting point. So mm-hmm. is this also being... And, and how much are these sorts of things discussed among policymakers and among the implementers of mm-hmm. strategy? I mean, is this a constant... Um, when people working on the, uh, the channel program have a beer, they debate these sorts of issues? Or is this not... Is this left tacit all the time? Brilliant, brilliant. Um, when you said order, at first I heard order in the other sense. Of uh, like order. orders, you know. Yeah, no, 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 a different oh. one. Order. Order. As opposed Gen- to chaos. Cohesive order, yeah. Um, so, of course, you, you know what it's like. You're rapidly thinking, what am I going to answer, Craig? Um, <laughs> I thought, ooh, interesting idea. Yes, religion, actually, to these officials mm-hmm. is rep- representing this disorderly yeah. kind of chaos that they're, they're struggling to master. But back to your real question. Um, there is definitely a pot- order in the sense of chronology. There is a very strong uh, assumption that religious ideas are causal. The religious ideology is causal, and it's causing radicalization and extremism. And, of course, the justification, the second phase, this is never said, but the second phase, just uncovering the unconscious thinking, uh, the justification for intervening is that ideas cause behavior. There'd be no harm in, you know, a lot of Hizbut-Tahrir people are purely kind of armchair theorists, and they're never going to sort of scratch anyone, let alone blow someone up. Um, but if you think re- ideas cause behavior, then you're justified in going for the ideas and not just the behavior. And if you think, then, that the ideas are causing radicalization, that's the kind of tacit chain of justification. Mm. I think it's wrong. <laughs> but I certainly think it's simplistic. I think um, one of the things that goes on in radicalization is there's not one thing going on. There's father issues for some. Every journey is different. There are some patterns that you can identify, but no two journeys are are alike. And they're all interactions of factors. But I think in most... Well, I think the shift now to Daesh or ISIS uh, has made some of these things so much clearer because so much has changed... I'm finding it very hard to believe, and forgive me if I'm being patronizing, but I'm finding it very hard to believe that 16-year-old schoolgirls are on a deep quest for what political ideology they believe in. They've been reading Rawls, and they've been reading Kutub, and finally they read this, and they think, ah, that answers all my, my, my ideological questions, and now I'm persuaded. Something very different mm-hmm. is happening, and the ideology is a sort of post-justification. And, and it's, it seems to me so clear when you actually look at the recruiting tactics and the different tactics they have for people they describe differently. So the one who's kind of the idealist gets very different things on Twitter being sent to them than the one who is already a criminal, like the perpetrators in in France last year, like uh, some of the Brixton cases that we dealt with earlier. They're very easy because all those inhibitions to violence, all those inhibitions to transgression 
the work of overcoming those, which is a lot of work, already been done before mm -hmm. the extremist group has got there. All you need to do is give them the cause and the ideology, and then they're a criminal with a cause. Um, when you see that, you realize very different factors are at work here. And ideology, schmideology, or whatever, for many of them, it's really, they're not that interested in politics and theology. Not when you consider that the, for the average age now, the recruitment's finished by the age of 20. So it's the language of recruitment lends itself to an account which is essentially individualistic, which is how do some people get selected for this bad thing to happen? Um, and seeing extremism or radicalization um, or whatever term is going to be used um, as an attribute of individuals and as a sort of path feature. Their path went so far instead of stopping at some place on the way. Um, which is reminiscent of things like accounts of drug addiction that folks, well, you know, people start with alcohol and then it leads to marijuana and then they do this and then they do that, right? There's a, a progression, in a sense, which have the, the problem of being sort of reasoning backward from end states and all of this and ignoring what goes on statistically. So social scientists, by and large, come in and sort of say, Yes, that's not a very good account since the vast majority of people who drink don't become heroin addicts. The vast majority of people who use marijuana don't become heroin addicts. That the reasoning backward that all of the heroin addicts tried something softer first doesn't t explain this story very well. Is there thinking about the, the sort of cross-sectional? The same logic has been used for hundreds of years throughout the modern era to explain crime, right? How do people get involved in becoming criminals? There's a whole series of biographical consequences, as opposed to, say, cross-sectional things like um, poverty or any of a variety of other things. Is there an attempt to balance the account of people becoming radicalized from some not radical starting point with an account of communities, saying something like radical beliefs are an attribute um, in some statistical proportion? Of, of communities, of thinking of this in some different way of populations. Um, no. Okay. <laughs> Too sophisticated. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm being very unkind. There's a lot of, of very thoughtful um, reflection and work going on in some quarters, and I would say, don't quote me, that's dangerous to say, um, I found a lot more re thoughtful reflection and inquiry going on at senior levels of the police force than I found in most sectors within Whitehall. Like the questions I read out earlier, um, I couldn't get anyone, what you're going to see, the eyes glazing over a bloody academic. No one was interested in debating these, these abstract questions, but <coughs> police officers were really engaged. I didn't introduce the questions to them. I didn't need to. They would raise this for me, and I thought I was thinking that, or they'd come up and talk to me about it. And those questions, for example, are we moving from counter-extremism to counter-subversion? really exercised senior people in special branch or special operations 15 because they were going to have to enforce it. They were the ones who were going to actually have to engage. And just as now, I mean, I had a conversation with someone um, very senior last week. He just rolled his eyes. He's going to have to sort of scrutinize someone's tweets, Richard Dawkins' tweets, before they're allowed to be sent out. Literally, literally, police you know, might be... Uh, required before yeah. you can kind of go online and use social media, go on Facebook. That's someone from shuffling around from the counter-terrorist command, checking your Facebook posts. Um, but there isn't that sense, I think, 
of the interplay between the individual and community as, I'll use the clinical non-village language, a protective factor. Mm-hmm. Um, there certainly is a, an anxiety about pockets of, well, what did David Cameron say last year? Pockets of entirely segregated communities. And he wasn't talking about white Devon. He was talking about mm-hmm. Oldham, uh, Bradford, and so on. Yeah. Those other ones. Um, so there's an, a, a sense of kind of septic communities as all part of the problem and the mood music to which the violent extremists are, are playing. But there isn't a strong sense of community as a toxic fact, a sort of protective factor. And, as and a normal there was at the beginning of prevent more of this. Or is, am I am I wrong to think that when? Um, in the, the Blair era, the early versions of put in place, there was more of an attempt to link this to community and to work with community groups to try to create that sort of protective community response. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a change that happens within this that's on this uh, dimension. Yeah, and quite a lot of what happened in Prevent, both in Channel, as I was describing earlier, and the broader Prevent, um, I wouldn't say money was thrown, but sort of money money was there and people created their own projects and had their own initiatives and did their own thinking and applied for money and got it or didn't and there was much more of a sense of innovation and a community-led thing and a lot of what they intuitively did was not about counter-indoctrinating people what not to believe it was much more creative and much more holistic ironically when um, there were complaints understandable complaints that prevent and cohesion or integration had to be separated because it was offensive to integration, messing up integration that was being securitized. Actually, I felt there was a a lot of harm unintentionally done by overreacting and saying there must be no cohesion and prevent and there must be no prevent and cohesion because people's intuitions who were actually on the ground was these are not separate issues sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, This young man here is really, really in a bad place. Next week he might join a gang or next week he might join Omar Jaroon and I don't know which it's going to be, but it'll be something um, because it is not a religious quest that's gone wrong. Um, So there was, I think, partly maybe ideologically a better understanding of communities um, at the time. Mm. It's in, in my mind completely inseparable from the economic question because lots of community projects is lots of money. I mean, a project that might have got 200,000 to run the youth center and have boxing and have teaching and have football and have various different people working in groups or small sessions. You could kind of work with someone and just befriend them for, you know, three months before you actually had the conversations. Um, all that takes several hundred thousand pounds in premises and employees. One-to-one mentoring, someone gets referred typically three to six sessions, three to six conversations. Is that really enough? What are you really going to do? That's a few hundred quid. So the, the economic incentive to say, this is all not working, this is all not working, and it's for ideological reasons or, or effectiveness reasons, <coughs> to me is completely inescapable from the economic driver that just sees a lot of money that could be saved if we stop encouraging all this community activity. So I'm going to ask only one more question, so I'll give the audience a chance, unless they just fail to say anything, in which case I'll... <laughs> well, we'll, we'll I have a long list, but I, this is just almost asking you to be informed. So I lived in Britain most, much of the 1970s, and I moved away, and I came back four years ago. And 
One of the things that was very hard for me to process was that nobody was objecting to the idea that the word radical was being used with an entirely negative meaning all the time. Um, That, you know, to be a radical is ipso facto bad. Radical of anything. Now, then there's the subtext that there's, you know, radical probably means radical Muslim, and it's really all about Islam. But there's no, no, it's radical is bad. So how did we lose, as a society in Britain, the the um, idea that radicals um, were a force for progress, for a force for good often, ideas that were linked to the history of the trade union and socialist movements, or for that matter, in a variety of places, radical liberals, often radical capital R, meant a kind of liberal, not a leftist. I mean, they, you know, how did this vanish from our collective usage? Do you remember that Tony Blair called himself a radical before 2001? Well, that would discredit it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think when you say labor and social, I mean, small L labor, trade union movements, I think that is actually part of the answer. Mm. I think part of it um, is a general um, small C conservative <laughs> resistance to things that are, let's just say, flaky or or passionate or or radical in that good sense. I think some of it is actually a linguistic thing. What do we call it? What do we call it? Um, What how do you describe the particular it that we're aiming at and disapproving of? It's hard to think of another word. Why is it hard to think of another word? I think because it isn't one thing. We're trying to create one thing and give it the label. But actually... Um, a disaffected person um, who's really, really angry has been um, thieving, is now thieving for Allah. That's not, to me, the same thing called radicalization. No. That is someone who has grown up. And to me, this explains a lot of ISIS. That's the generation that's grown up entirely under the shadow of 9-11 and has been persistently told that their identity is a problem and their contribution is not welcome. And then they get love-bombed, you know, 40 tweets a day from someone saying, we need you, we need you to build a new society, come and join us and do this. I don't think that's the same it. But because we need to give it one label, we can't give it a theological label. It isn't Salafi, Salafi, Wahhabi. And we're determined uh, that we can find a, an underlying something rather than just saying it's violence that we object to. Yeah, because it's not other people's violence. You know this. You probably know this statistic that um, in the last few years, you're more likely in the United States to be shot by a toddler than killed by a terrorist. Statistically, um, that's not what we mean. That's not what we mean by radical. That's not what we mean by by dangerous. Um, I think because. I don't know. I used to go through a period of opening the paper yet again and seeing yet again some teenager has bled to death on London streets crying for his mother who couldn't get there in time. I used to think, why is there so much bloody money being given to prevent? And I, you know, with some of the people mm. trying to get the money, thinking we shouldn't be given all this money. So, so many more young people are being killed by each other or being killed, being killed by other causes. It doesn't threaten the state. I just can't get past that notion. It doesn't threaten the state. It's a disorder that it's in in that pocket and hasn't come out of that pocket to affect the rest of us. All right. With that, let me invite questions and ask questioners to wait for the microphone to get to you and say who you are when you speak. Um, So, right here. Do you want to take two or three? Yeah, that's fine. Let me write then. 
Thank you very much for a hugely interesting lecture. Um, my name is Catherine Thayer and I'm the director of uh, the All Party Parliamentary Group for Freedom of Religion and Belief. So I actually try and put some of these ideas into policy. And I've just submitted a paper to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee on the definition of political Islam and extremism, which is a huge problem. Um, so hopefully they'll listen to that. We'll see tomorrow at the oral evidence. Um, a couple of points uh, I just wanted to raise as well. I'm also engaged with trying to make parliamentarians and individuals on Whitehall more religiously literate through an FCO conference coming up, for example, again on this topic. Um, and again, um, I, I wanted to get your views around, um, I'm sure you're aware of the, the latest UN Special Rapporteur's report on counter-extremism and the, his saying the securitisation of these after-school projects, counter-terrorism projects for the marginalised and alienate individuals in society and are counterproductive, which I think, I mean, that came out in your speech just now. Um, and I'm concerned particularly um, by the input that's been given by different organisations, such as RUSI at the moment, that is very much looking at the individual's mind and their sickness and that they are, um, it's not looking, like you said, at the input and the context of their lives into why they might have been like that, but rather the ideological aspect of it. Um, and, and it's just very interesting to see that, um, that this change in policy and the economic in, input into that, I, I didn't realise that there'd been a change in policy, Home Office policy, shows and the UN Special Rapporteur's report shows that it's, it's not working the security approach and um, so I just wanted to get more of your thoughts on that and any findings that would be really useful for myself. The other point, um, I'm looking at exploring the links because we work on freedom of religion or belief between that and stability and security therefore in society kind of around SDG 16 um, and you, it came out again in your speech, but um, what you found about increasing liberties, I'm, I'm trying to demonstrate, I think there's a lot of consensus amongst parliamentarians particularly and, and Whitehall staff that um, that religion's almost the enemy and it, it, it kind of blocks you off. So an increase in liberty and freedom of religion must therefore be very, very dangerous. Um, and just your thoughts around countering this. I've had people say there's no way that you can do that. It's actually the other way around. Um, so I'm competing against different voices, but I'd, yeah, your thoughts around that would be really helpful. Thank you. Really interesting points. Thanks. There was a question just over here in the men in the blue vest. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for the um, enlightening speech. Um, my name is Daniel Alabedi. I work with Satwa Strings. Um, you talked a lot about religion and how complex it is and um, the causes it causes to the extremists. My own question is that you tried to mention Lambert, Brixton in particular. Lambert as a council, they are closing down all their social amenities that can engage the younger ones, including the library. So in, in, in due to that, what are we doing through education to instill proper discipline? And when I mean proper discipline, is not smacking. That is the, the moral culture, the moral value, the belief that what you're doing is wrong. It's not pampering wrongly. Or when they are doing the wrong thing, they say it is right, and other things like that. 
Luckily, you said in your speech as well, as regards the people making decisions, doesn't know actually what is going on on the lower ground. What are we doing to that as well? Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. Okay, and let's have a last question for the man over at that end. Yeah. Mm, hi, Carl Allen. Uh, Trinidad, 1990. I guess you would know something about that. So I talked to over 100 of these youths before the incident of July who were involved in it. I was in a position to talk to them. And what I found generally was that these were youths who had a deep sense of the injustices being perpetrated, not just on them, but on many like them. And this is what brought them to where they were. But I couldn't say what goes on in England. I'm not familiar. And I wondered if there was, if it was comparable. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thank you for those three um, really interesting points. Actually, I'll just take them in reverse order um, and start with yours. Um, Any time you speak to people on the ground, there's a strong sense that there are keenly felt injustices and grievances is the word always used. Grievance is an interesting word rather than injustice. Grievance sort of implies the person's a bit irritable and, and it may be actually not valid rather than there are serious issues and cases of injustice that, that need re- redress. Um, so it's always interesting that the code word is, is grievances. There's a very strong drive to deny those now. Um, particularly, uh, actually more since uh, the, the murder of Lee Rigby when Cameron sort of woke up a bit more t- to the issue. He wasn't actually that engaged on this issue before then. Um, so in some of the speeches he's, he made, Bratislav and so on, some of the, the talks he gave last year, there's a really strong drive to reject the sense that there is this factor involved. It's very hard to deny it. You, you, need to, you just need to listen to people. So you need to either imagine that it's just totally fantasized or just spurious or just a, um, a self-serving excuse. Um, but I don't think it's that. There can be um, a victim mentality that can kick in where um, people are nursing a particular sense of something, but it's not totally hallucinated. One of the things that I find really curious is that we have a very strong push now for counter-narratives, and we need people to give counter-narratives to the narratives of extremism and the narratives of takfiri jihadism. why you got that sort of sarcastic comment from me earlier saying, take back the hostile takeover of the counter-narrative. There's something so flimsy and flaccid and dull about a counter-narrative when when what is happening is being much more exciting. It's going up against something really exciting that's motivating people. And we've got this sort of prim, dutiful counter-speech that's being put forward instead of a more compelling vision being put forward. But the one counter-narrative we don't actually get not much, uh, which I wish you know the government is entitled to do and they should do, and that is stop the propaganda, drop the propaganda, but just give your account of these events of contemporary history. Explain foreign policy. If people are aggrieved by foreign policy, give an account of it. 
treat, treat it in a rational way, engage with the political issues. Um, and it's so curious that they are qualified and entitled to do that, and it's not happening much. There is some communication put out of the good, about the good things they've done in Syria. That's just propaganda. That's comms. don't mean it's not true. It's important that people know it. But actually engaging in the debate on, what, on those injustices, um, how far are they real, how far are they being blown out of proportion, or what is, what is your alternative account, is not being done. And I, the only thing I can think of, or the first thing I can think of, uh, is that they don't actually want to engage on these political issues at all. They want to insist it's, it's a problem with religion rather than it being uh, the issues and injustices. And one of the things about it being religion and neither political or foreign policy issues or social marginalization is religion is one thing, it's not the government's fault. So there's a sort of shifting of blame onto the one thing that they have not caused. Um, Daniel's point about Lambeth, I think uh, the closure of amenities, services, libraries is actually quite important uh, in, this, in this area. It's not if you're just focusing on ideology, but that uh, point I was making earlier that we, we evaluated some, a few years ago about the holistic approach, a much richer approach, is actually what you need. These people have too narrow a frame of reference. You need to widen their frame of reference. You need to give them more explanations. You give, need to give them more and richer cultural experiences than the narrowing down um, that they're getting. And the question of education and moral value is, I think, absolutely spot on, uh, Daniel, because I think one of the issues happening with prevent and education, um, there are really two things that are supposed to happen. One is refer people, if there's a concern, and the other is teach them about British values, get this through their heads, so to speak, um, and counteract you know, the ideology, as it were, which, uh, well, when is that very effective? How well does it work on drugs or teenage sex or something like that? I think part of what we, what we need to be doing in the school context, which ironically could be an issue of values if it's, if it's done well, is talking about character. We're treating it as uh, an issue of cognitive thing, of belief, rather than framing people's ethical sense, developing a sense of compassion, and also the question of who is the compassion for? I don't think that any, everyone who becomes a suicide bomber or a jihadi is lacking in compassion. They're very strong compassion for the in-group. Otherwise, they wouldn't kill themselves for the sake of others, actually. But it's extending their notion of who the ummah is or extending the notion of who deserves your compassion. So I think these issues of, of character formation are actually more important than just hitting people with this imagined cognitive view of religion that, that Craig, that Professor Calhoun, hit on from the very beginning. Um, and finally, you know, the questions from the, the APPG. I admire you dealing with this question of defining political Islam and defining this, this terrain because it is extremely difficult and there isn't a non-contentious non-contestant one, because it isn't, of course, just about finding the politically acceptable label. It's about framing, framing the conception of, of what you're working with. Um, yes, I think um, there are input from various groups with particular notions that they want to drive about what's going on, and you, you mentioned one of them. Um, and thank you for also the reference to the UN rapporteur. I think that was very telling and very much in, I think, in the spirit of what, what I'm trying to describe. Um, it's so much easier to focus on the individual's mind and the individual's ideology 
I'm going to link it back to my earlier comments. If the whole framework that you're operating with in terms of the cure is a one-to-one session of three, maybe six sessions with one person where you can deal with their mind, if you're talking about the wider context of their life, I mean, we used to do very broad um, vulnerability assessments, you know, are they in education, what's happening in their family life, are there generational issues going on, was she self-harming last week, all these sorts of much broader issues, and it used to be encompassed in a, a much richer way. But I think the conception of what the problem is and what you want to do to address it can't be separated. And if your, your mode of addressing it is actually driven not by studies, not uh, the, the evidence base, there was a whole political issue around evaluation, which has never gone public. Um, at one point, it was a really political hot potato when Jackie Smith was Home Secretary because she wanted the evidence when, as she expected she would be, the opposition parties sort of, really dragged her over the coals for funding Muslim projects. She wanted to have the evidence to say it works. Um, But then there was a serious problem in the politics of evaluating, because we were the ones meant to be evaluating, and they eventually got stopped from doing the the outcome evaluations um, for dark reasons I won't go into here, except that there had already already been a decision that there were certain projects, the Salufis, that they didn't want to continue to fund, but they were going to do quite well in the outcome evaluation. Uh, And actually, because of the ongoing connections, they still kind of never got it off the ground to do the evaluations. And we used to have these little friendly arguments with a a new research and behavioral unit that was set up um, because um, they're scientists that they brought in from Imperial we're insistent that the only kind of, well, it's a gold standard of, of testing, isn't it? The only kind of thing you could do was a randomized controlled trial, because that was the only kind of evidence of effectiveness that's any good, like it's a drug for blood pressure or something. I'm thinking the controlled trial of someone who's at risk of blowing people up, we'll leave him in the control group. <laughs> but because it's ethical, I have to go to him in my white coat and say, and I need to disclose on our ethics, you know, where the funding comes from. We're doing a home office funded study. Into, mm-hmm. We're not going to change your beliefs, but it's going to enable us to change other pe- people's beliefs. Will you, will you cooperate with sure, us? Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and tell us the truth. Uh, when we ask you about, you know, how many times have you fantasized about strapping that, that vest on this week? Um, and there, there are multiple problems with a randomized controlled trial for potential terrorists and whether the intervention works. But, you know, one of the kind of ludicrous moments was when they said, well, you know, a sample, a sample of 100 it's too small. And I thought, <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing. You should be happy that we don't have that many people in channel, isn't it? <laughs> Shall I go out and manufacture more jihadists for the sake of your, your kind of sample size to make it more valid? I know it's not valid. That's why I'm suggesting we don't do a randomized controlled trial at T1 and T2. Um, without, that, without debate about what's the right methodology for evaluating, you haven't got... Uh, a way to have an evidence base for what's effective, and then you also don't have an evidence base for what kind of um, intervention you're going to do. So actually, there's persistently been um, inadequate research. I mean, this extremism analysis group was set up last year, and I thought, oh, what's that going to do? But I discovered last week um, that uh, what it does is when its internal customers and governments say, what about this group? What about the Salufi the Salufi activist group, and they go away and they do the research and say, yep, yep, it's extremist, and that's what the extremism analysis group is. I thought it was kind of something a little more complex than that. Um, 
Sorry, I'm just All thinking right. time-wise we need to let other people in, but no. we can maybe talk more about the links to security and stability and okay, maybe another time. Get another round of questions for a round of time. Gentlemen up there, then we'll come down here to the centre. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I was just interested in your, I was really interested in um, your kind of broadening of the debate, really, beyond the religious, being a religious thing. But in terms of values and the British values, it seems to me that the the core of it is, is John Stuart Mill, isn't it? It's the idea that we have, is that we can, everyone can believe what they want as long as they don't harm other people. Now, the, the thing that I found um, sort of challenging is that what's interesting about it is it's a negative value which is why this interventionist approach seems to be so misguided that you appear to be talking about is that positive arguing you can't it's difficult to get passionate about let everyone believe what they want you know and it doesn't make sense but the way we defeat this surely is the same way we defeated christianity it's because you can't if the more you attack a religion the more it, oh, we, you know they, they love it and so it's it's because it just gives them they bind together and it's you know it's like a it's an emotional kin thing where it's if we can it's actually the less we do the more it's about the, the broadening as you say the the sideways work so you actually can make it into community that that this seems to me very interesting because that's that's what i'm getting from you is that what made me think of that it's it's not about so the whole idea of intervening these one hour slots is the exact opposite of how we're going to defeat this and we are going to because Although the purity attracts teenage thinking, and that's to me, that seems to me the root of it. It's the purity, the essence. The, the, can you, the, the, the question I have is, can you comment on, on an article, and I don't know if you came across it, it was a long piece in The Atlantic some time ago, talking about how what really is attracting um, a, lot of, a lot of people, and I can, you can just think about it, it makes sense. It's, it's, it's an end times, apocalyptic, purity doctrine which is going to be attractive when you want a black and white answer in a grey world and, it, and that to me, to me also reflects the same thing John Stimmel is negative, it's grey it's, there's no, it's postmodern. there's no it's truth and that's never going to work with un, someone under the age of 20 it's just that's not something you can sell mm -hmm. so I, I just wanted to see if you come up further on that kind of purity idea so two men right here in the centre, one in front of the other yeah Hi, thank you. My name is Luis. I'm a student here at the LSE. Um, I'm very interested in the way that how the enemy has been framed here. Like, uh, you, as you were saying, like, uh, if it is religion itself or is it like many other social factors? And I wonder, what do you think? Is it like um, political naivety from the government that do not know how to handle this? Or it is just politically more convenient to identify an evil as to religion rather than accept there are many other social things going on? As you say, like... Uh, to blame the government itself is rather just to divert the blame to to kind of this figure this ideology and 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 what are the consequences of this approach that has been causing us Aaron was like uh, propaganda no, action is propaganda like how do you blaming the enemy actually they become the enemy all these grievances that are now are creating among the Muslim community that actually are proving kind of the labeling that the government has put in on them. so what are your thoughts about this? Did you have a question as well? Yeah, right in front of you. Just yeah. Very sure. just, um, yeah, I'm just curious as to, I remember a few years ago a, um, a talk given by someone quite, quite well known in North America, um, um, Shadardi, I think his name is. He's a commentator writer. Shawarti, perhaps. Anyway, he, did, he mentioned that how the ease at which certain 
immigrant groups, for instance, the, the, the Gujarati Hindus, they, they, uh, and the people generally from East Africa, they acclimatized much more quickly. And why is it that certain immigrant groups seem to um, be so much more rigid uh, um, than others, um, knowing that the indigenous population really, even if it's, ta- it's, if it's not explicit, really um, takes offense at things like the veil and um, and uh, 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 FGM. Okay, and uh, let me take one last question. Then we're going to have to be the last round. The men blue in the back. Thank you for a really interesting talk. Uh, it's Abdul Hai. Um, just an interesting person. Interesting person in this. Um, I just wanted to sort of just say and also ask a question around given that there's no trajectory or pathway to radicalization I wonder to what extent people self-select themselves and make decisions themselves to join these because there's something else that's missing um, something that says about the state of our society and the condition we're in at the moment and bearing those factors in mind to what extent do you think that prevent should be taken out of the hands of law enforcement and handed to other more capable groups and organizations, for example, in the arena of, say, child abuse, human traffic. I'm thinking of an organization like the real experts rather than the law enforcement organizations like NSPCC and, uh, and so on. Um, is this something we need to look at in relation to that and taking this whole debate, counter-narrative, etc., out of the hands of law enforcement totally and prevent not being part of the UK counter-terrorism strategy at all? Wow, really good question. I, I've been talking too much. I apologise. I'll try and keep it a bit shorter and get... Um, very, very quickly, the purity and the end time of the apocalypse, that's very much a, um, a feature of Islamic State, much more than, than some other movements. And very, very similar, not coincidentally, to Christian apocalypticism and appealing to the same psychological, social psychological factors, I would, I would say. Um, the purity, in a way, that you're talking about and these, these extremes, that kind of black and it's a kind of black and white thinking. So linking it to the point you were making earlier about don't attack it, don't attack them. I don't know if it makes them happy. It may make them a bit gleeful, but attacking people does make people bond um, closer together. And of course, more defensive. You want to change someone, don't attack them. And that was one of the points that I was making earlier in terms of effective interventions. Because it raises a sense of threat, because it just increases all those characteristics you're talking about, is actually completely engaging the, the wrong part of the brain in the wrong kind of a way. So forgive me, but that's a very, very short response. Um, on framing the, the enemy um, and why religion is it just convenient to blame religion, it's, it's a, in some ways a very puzzling thing. To me, the analogy would be Let's say there was a sudden spike in, in teenage pregnancies and, and you were tasked, let's say, with saying, why is there this sudden spike in teenage pregnancies? And then some notable think tanks came and said, it's because more teenagers are having unprotected sex. 
Yes. Um, that, to me, is exactly the same as why are people falling prey to this strange religion movement because they're going for the ideology is exactly the same logical structure, I think, to, to the argument. Yes, okay, obviously they are. But the question is why? Why are some people, why are they starting to do this? Why is there a change in teenager behavior? Why are they being attracted to an ideology that seems so repugnant and seem to have so many barriers? So I, I think um, partly one factor is, is a kind of social factor. There are forces or there are people there who are pushing very, very hard on this button and they have the government's ear. So there are particular think tanks and so on or, uh, or experts or researchers who want to, to stress this, this point. And it's much easier to do that than deal with serious structural inequality or major changes to foreign policy, which is just not on the cards, I think, um, happening. Um, in terms of some immigrant groups uh, acclimatizing more than others, I'm sorry, really inadequate brief answer. I just want to kind of flip to the positive. Um, one study that we did with a range of different religious and ethnic minority groups in the UK, we wanted to look at success stories uh, rather than the usual problems. So we wanted to look at people who were really uh, pillars of their community. They could be self-made millionaires or they could be unemployed, but a real pillar of their community and a success for a whole range of factors. And there was one, we interviewed about 75 people. Every single person had one thing in common probably the only thing they had in common. They were all contributing something. And there was some young man who was working two full-time jobs and volunteering every day as well. I don't know how he did it. Everyone was sort of giving something back. And the interesting thing was what they all said. I was quite interested as a sort of research question at the start. Do different religions maybe have different strategies to... Gujarati Muslims do something from Gujarati Hindus? Um, is there something in their faith that makes them different things in their faith that make them make this work somehow but all the different religions were saying the one thing my religion teaches and it was all the same thing the one thing that their religion teaches which is that you have to give something back and I thought this is a really this would be a really interesting well part of a strategic philosophy for integration is not you know are they learning English and, and what else are they in a position where they can contribute to the society and what they are contributed what they want to contribute is welcomed I was really annoyed by this statistic that said this many, this percentage of Muslim people have never eaten in someone else's house. And they've never had a dinner in a non-Muslim's house. And I thought, you'd pick the one thing that they're not in control of. <laughs> what you should have asked is how many white people have invited a, or Christian people or Jews have invited a Muslim around for dinner. That's the statistic behind that you should have investigated. Um, so the final question, um, the very rich question, there's no pathway, and given that there must be a degree of self-selection and something missing in people's lives, it's a really interesting um, thought experiment, and I was thinking about this, you know, partly in relation to this talk, you know, what would Occupy Prevent look like? What would the people's channel um, look like? And in some ways, a very much community-owned thing where actually there were people with expertise who were known, who were accessible, and the referral was the parent or the school contacting the practitioner directly without it needing to go through the police, um, in many ways would bring um, a lot of benefits, I think. And then where you could have people like the, the people with a different kind of expertise you mentioned are resources that are available. The control is the question. I'm not sure. I mean, there, there's been talk about making channel not, well, channel not being officially 
controlled by the police but by the local authority and just in terms of on the ground I've actually found it much easier when it's in the hands of police because the sort of task focus work ethic get it, get it done just tends to happen much more effectively than the rather casual attitudes that can happen in the local authorities um, but I think part of the issue you're going to find is the anxiety around preventing some some actual crime or some act of violence. But that, again, we still have that, these sorts of issues when you think about a psychotherapist who's counselling someone who's a victim of sexual abuse. That's a crime. There are regulations about when you need to report something. So I think if there is a better understanding and education of the, the community practitioners, rather than being framed by the police, if they are sufficiently well-trained and had the relationships in place, that could be a way of, round, of, of getting around that issue. But I think it's something that we should send up to be, to be considered. All right. I'm afraid we've run out of time. We have not run out of questions, but <laughs> please join me in thanking Gwen Griffith.